Well, hello, everybody. So good to see you, everybody in the room watching online. Thanks for being here. Hey, we are in a series in the book of Exodus. We'll get to that in just a moment. Hey, my own um, last couple of weeks have been interesting. So on Friday night, there was a military coup in Turkey, and Jenny and I just sent our, our oldest daughter there about a week and a half ago. And so I've never been on the, State Depart- on the phone with the State Department at 2 in the morning talking about extraction plans. That was their term, extraction plans. But it all calmed down. Thanks for your prayers. It looks like it's going to be okay. And then this past week, I had this great privilege. I got to go as an emissary from Montana, from Faith Chapel, to Alaska. Our family of churches has, uh, I think, 10 churches there in Alaska, spread out all over the state. And we were able to visit all of them but two. Two of them you needed to catch a long float plane ride to go visit. And we just simply did this. These are people in isolated places. And for some reason... They have an affinity with Montanans. I, like, if you think Montana's a little bit isolated, Montana's a little bit isolated, Alaska's like over the top. And so we just got to show up in their homes, um, visit their church buildings, encourage them, tell them they had friends down in the lower 48 and uh, pray for them. So it was a great experience. Thanks for letting me do that. I saw a lot of beautiful Montana, of uh, Alaska, drove a lot of miles. There aren't that many roads, but the few that are, are long and windy. Very long and windy. So Exodus chapter 18. Here's where we're at. Over the past few weeks, uh, we looked at how you have these Hebrew people who originally went to Egypt to experience help because they were facing a massive famine. There's a group of 70 people who traveled to Egypt. There they find their long-lost brother Joseph. They're saved from the famine, but they're going to take a long pause in Egypt. This long pause is going to be 440 years. And somewhere during that period, no longer were they guests in Egypt. They were very prosperous. They began to multiply. And the Pharaoh who was in power decided, we need to enslave these people. These people are less than we are. They are subhuman. And so eventually, the Egyptian empire uses the Hebrew people, now numbering somewhere in the neighborhood of 750,000, as slave labor. So they are oppressed for hundreds of years. Then we read about a man named Moses in Exodus chapter 3 who hears from God that he's supposed to return to Egypt, release the people. And God does these miracles where he shows his power over the Egyptian government, Pharaoh, the Egyptian gods, and eventually the people are released. And now we're about a month into their journey. They've been traveling through the Sinai Peninsula. They're at Mount Sinai. They're camped. And remember, these are people who have been slaves for 400 years. They've been liberated for four or five weeks. But it is going to take a long time for them to become free both in their hearts and in their minds. They've been told for centuries that they were unworthy. They've been told for centuries that the Egyptian gods were the only gods who really had any power. So what God is going to do, he's going to move them from here to there, not just out of Egypt, from a place of confusion, a lack of identity, to a place of understanding who God is and understanding who they are. As they're paused at Mount Sinai, Think about this for a moment. Imagine a culture with no government, 
750,000 people who there's no real laws yet. There's no decrees. There's no leadership structure. All they have is Moses. And what is going to happen here is Moses is going to have his life altered and the people are going to have their lives altered because what they do naturally isn't going to work for their long-term journey. So we pause here at Exodus chapter 18 because they're a little bit stuck. There's a complexity that's set in that God needs to release and bring hope for. So let's read together from Exodus chapter 18. We'll pause as maybe we'll walk through a few things to make it clear. And then we're going to look at how this applies to our lives. Exodus 18, beginning at chapter 1. Now Jethro, this is Moses' father-in-law, the priest of Midian and the father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, okay, here's, here's where we notice there's some sort of problem. Moses, of course he's a busy man. He's leading 750,000 people out of Egypt. But somewhere along the line, he looked at Zipporah, he looked at his two sons, and he said, hey, I just, I can't handle being a dad and a husband right now. So here's what, you guys just go back. Go back to your dad, and we'll get together a family again as soon as we have time. So there's a separation in, in the family. There's this tension that's happening. So uh, one son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I've become a foreigner in a strange land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He served, saved me from the sword of, of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Like a good father-in-law, he reminds him, your wife and your two sons. She's not my daughter anymore primarily. She's your wife, your two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now, I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. Let me just pause there for just a moment. Here's what we know about the Midians. So Jethro, he was a high priest of Midian. The Midians historically worshipped the moon. So they were worshippers of this moon deity. And something is happening right here in Jethro. He says this. He says, listen, Moses, I know you had this other God. To me, he was a foreign God. You called him Yahweh. You said you met him in the desert. And now that I see that he is more powerful than any other God, that he can take oppressed people and help them to find freedom. I see he's the most powerful God. And this is, this is quite an amazing statement that we might miss if we we're just reading it casually. He offered an offering to the God of Moses, to Yahweh. 
He is personally transformed by the story of people being free. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. I love that little phrase. You can have a dinner party in the presence of God. It can be significant because you're gathered there in the name of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. My daughter will not be happy here. My grandsons are not going to get any time from you. This is dysfunctional. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. Let me pause for a moment here. Every now and then in life, you will have an opportunity to give somebody advice or you'll be able to receive advice, right? All of us go through that. I love what Jethro models here. He's, he's a truth teller. He looks at his son-in-law, who, remember, was his boss for 40 years, and he says, listen, what you are doing is not good. But he also offers an alternative. Just a little word. When, when you notice something unhealthy in, in someone you love, tell them but offer alternatives. Criticism without alternatives really can be dis disastrous to a relationship. So this is what he says. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide by themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened. Very key. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. They served as judges for the people at all times, the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones, they decided themselves. This passage of scripture has been very, very formative in my own life. I'll get to that in just a moment. But I also think it's going to help us think about how we do things. What's God's heart for people? How are people served well? Let's first of all, let's just look at Jethro's observations. Okay, now remember, this is your father-in-law. And he shows up. He hasn't been part of the story. He hasn't seen the miracles that God's done. But he sees Moses go to work. And as he's watching Moses work from morning till evening, this is what he observes. He says, the people stood around from morning till evening waiting for Moses to hear their grievances. That's what he observed. Have you ever been on the phone and you heard something like this? 
we're sorry, we're experiencing a high volume of calls right now. Please be patient for the next available agent. And have you ever looked at that timer on your phone and when it hit the 30, 40, 50 minute mark, what did you feel? The word is frustrated, right? You're like, come on. What does it communicate? It communicates that you are not that important. It communicates that there are so many layers of bureaucracy that they can't even get to you. Nobody likes to wait. So imagine this scenario. Have, have you ever been on a camping trip, maybe a family camping trip, and after just a couple of days, I mean, everybody's a little dirty and you're trying to cook all in the same place. You're getting a little family tension happening. Like, y'all got to climb in that tent at night. Somebody's mad at somebody else. And you're the, you know, humphing and, you know, frustration. Imagine 750,000 people, more people than live in the state of Wyoming, camping in close proximity, and there are no outhouses. All right? Can you imagine the tension? Like, no, that was my goat. No, it's not. You're camped right next to us. We need some space. There's all this tension, and here's what's happening. They're coming to Moses because Moses is the only person who can judge between them. So from morning till evening, 12 hours a day, they're standing before Moses, waiting their turn to ask Moses his opinions on their disputes. Next thing, number two. Jethro says, what you're doing is not good. Moses, this... This isn't going to work. Jethro has the ability to project out what the next years would look like. He just says, there's no way that this can continue to happen. This, this isn't healthy. His third observation is this. You will wear yourself out and you'll wear out the people. Moses, you're not going to be able to sustain this weight of every challenge within this community weighing in on you. You can't handle that. The people can't handle it. People waiting for these long periods of time, you being the linchpin of this community, you being the smallest part in that funnel, you're going to wear yourself out. And fourthly, the observation is this. The work is simply too heavy, and no one man can handle it all alone. And that is sometimes hard for leaders to hear. That is sometimes particularly hard for men to hear. You can't handle this. You can't do this. It's just too heavy. There's too much going on. It's beyond your ability and your capabilities. Something else has to happen. So Jethro gives him a plan. Here's the plan. This for me has been very important because it has actually formed my personal job description. Okay, my personal job description. So he says, first of all, Moses, here's what you need to do. You need to be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Has anybody experienced this where we all want to know God? I really believe that. If, if you're here, you want to know God. You, you want to get to know him more. You want to spend time with him. You want to be familiar with the Bible. You want to pray. But there are demands on your life. There are jobs, there are hobbies, there are family involvements, all of these things. And sometimes you feel like God is being squeezed out. And you want, you want to take time, right? But you find it extremely difficult. Here's where Moses finds himself. This, this is Moses. He's not being with God. He's stopped that. 
Instead, he's with people. He's working. He's filling their demands. He's meeting their expectations. And Jethro says this, Moses, if there's one thing that you need to do, here's your first priority. I'm going to give you a new job description. You need to be with God. You need to know him. You need to be praying. You need to be open to him. You need to be hearing him because the people need that from you. And for all of us in the room, we understand that, we know that, but how are we gonna change our schedules? How are we gonna change our lives so that our first priority in our job description is that we are with God? When I get busy, I'll be very frank with you, this is the first thing that suffers. is my time with God. And Jethro says that is absolutely essential. Secondly, Jethro gives him this instruction. He says, not only do you need to be with God, but being with God, you need to hear him and then teach the people the decrees and instructions of the Lord. Moses, if you aren't with God, if you don't know who he is and what he is doing, what he is saying, you will have nothing to teach them. You think that you need to solve every problem, but you don't. Instead, you need to know God so that you can then communicate who God is to the people. That's what they want. They're hungry for God. Be a teacher. Equip people. Ready them for the tasks ahead. And he says, here's your third element of your job description. So be with God. Teach people. Thirdly, you need to show them the way to live and how they are to behave. Be a model for the people. Moses, if you are simply a theoretician, if you simply say things about God, but you don't authentically live those out. Because Moses, here's what you're doing right now. I mean, this is from your father-in-law. Imagine this. Moses, did you notice that you sent your wife back to me and I've been watching your grandsons, my grandsons? Moses, what you're modeling right now is not healthy. Moses, there's an illegitimacy. There's a breakdown in what you're showing the people. Moses, you need to rearrange your priorities. And then it's going to go God, and it's going to go equipping people, and your family has to be there. You have to live this out. You have to be genuine and authentic at your core. And all of us in the room, we know how much we dislike when people are not authentic. There's a word for that which is thrown at us all the time. It's hypocritical. And we don't want to be hypocritical. Jethro says, you've got to be legitimate through and through. You have to actually do this. Not a theoretician, but a practitioner. Be a model for the people. And then he says, here's the fourth part of your job description. The fourth part is, you need to select people to lead. You need to release people. Capable people. And he gives them a list. He says, you're going to find people who fear God, who are trustworthy. And then here's what you're going to do. Remember, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 750,000 people. He says, we're going to break this down, Moses. We're going to set up leaders over tens. We're going to set up leaders over fifties, over hundreds, and over thousands. Because right now, we have a leader over 750,000 people. And ladies and gentlemen, that is not efficient. And that is not helpful. And that is we are experiencing a high volume of calls right now. <laughs> Days on end. Moses says, uh, Jethro says to Moses, unless you can release this power, unless you can believe in other people, 
This will never happen. Moses, it can't be about you. You are the small part in the funnel of what God is doing, and you're shrinking it down to the size of one man, and God is always bigger than one man or one woman. Here's some tendencies. Here's some tendencies. We see this in this ancient passage of Scripture. We see it in governments. We see it in the church today. Here's the tendencies. Number one, I hate saying this. Leaders overestimate their own importance. You ever notice that? It feels so good to be needed, doesn't it? I mean, part of Moses must have groaned every morning when he got up and he looked at this line as far as he could see, and it was people who needed him. Part of him was like, oh, another day. But another part of him was, they need me. I've been a shepherd for the last 40 years, and now I am highly popular, right? I'm the end thing. Everybody has to come to me. And there's this tendency that every leader, whether you're in government, whether you're, you're, you're in the home, whether in the business place, that you overestimate your importance. And so th- this, is, this is the leadership power triangle. I mean, everybody's familiar with this idea. This is how we typically build leadership as human beings. There is one person at the top. And they have influence and power over everybody below them. In your workplace, chances are there is an org chart, an organizational chart. And what does the organizational chart communicate? Who's in charge in descending order? And the farther you get down on the org chart, the less you're paid (laughs) and the less powerful you are, the less influence you have. And there, there are people who love organizational charts. You know who those people are? They're people at the top third. They love them. They, they make copies of them, and they put them in the break room. They, they, they put them above the copier so that when you walk in, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm down here. I know my place. Shut up. Get the job done. This is just this is how leadership is always going to happen. But God's never pleased with that. We're going to talk about how he flips this here in this passage and then many years later. Here's the second tendency of organizations. So leaders overestimate themselves and leaders underestimate the abilities and potential of others. They just do. They look and they say, you know what? How can you soar like an eagle when you're surrounded by vultures? You know? You ever heard people say, like... I've got unique gifts and abilities, and like I'm in a flock of crows. This just is not working for me. So leaders underestimate the abilities and potential of others. It's natural. Now, here's the fascinating thing. What Jethro tells Moses to do is invert the power pyramid. I want you to flip it upside down. Moses, in fact, I'm going to turn this upside down. Right now, you know everything that is happening in this community. We're going to flip this upside down where you no longer are going to be the linchpin, where you are no longer are the one person that everybody has to go through. In fact, if, if you calculate this, okay, you need leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. That would have been 97,500 new leaders. That's like the population of Billings. 97,500 new leaders. And what, what Jethro says is you've got to flip this upside down because God is going to work through a whole bunch of different people. 
If it's just through one man, we're in trouble. And they'll bring the difficult cases to you. And this has always been God's heart for human beings. He made you. He made everyone in the room, all of us, in the image of God with unique abilities and gifts. Where we see this happen in a radical fashion is in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but you might want to read it later this week. Acts chapter 2. You have the most powerful inversion of this power triangle you could ever imagine. Jesus has been gone. It's 50 days after his resurrection. Everybody's terrified. They're trying to hunt down and find people associated with Jesus. And so what they've done is they've locked themselves in an upper room in Jerusalem. They're hiding behind lock and key. And God has said this. Jesus said, listen, there's something that's going to happen that is going to change the way I work with humanity. He says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit will be able to do is he will flip this all around. And so in that room, there's fishermen, there's carpenters, there's stonemasons, there's men, there's women, there's people of all different ethnicities in the room. And the Holy Spirit of God comes. God says, this is my new gift. And when you receive my gift, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get power. You're going to receive power to no longer be afraid. You're going to receive supernatural gifts to speak things that you've never spoken before. You're going to have my presence actually in you. It's not just among the priests and the elite and the rabbis. When I show up, people you'd never imagine are going to be infused with things directly from God and the world's going to change. And literally, as the spirit comes into the room, these people who are behind lock and key receive this power. These average people, they walk out into the streets and in a matter of 200 years, the world will be radically changed. They will move throughout the known world and they will plant churches and they will declare who God is and how good he is and that there's forgiveness and there's hope for everything that's broken and shattered in us. And how does it happen? It happens because it's no longer a power pyramid of the most powerful people with all the influence on top. God flips it upside down and he says, this is, this is who I'm gonna live my life through. This is who I'm gonna empower. Nurses and carpenters and lawyers and salespeople. I'm going to infuse them with things that will literally allow them to change the world. The miraculous will move through them. Let's move on to this idea of what does this mean to us today? How does this impact our world? Number one, I, just, I want to tell you a few commitments that I feel that we need to have. Number one, as a church, we will avoid unneeded structure. Let's have enough structure to serve people and avoid the type of structure where we end up serving the system. Has anybody ever filled out a form at work that seemed redundant and you sat there and you thought, they must have created this in 1962. And nobody's looked at it since then. Like there, there's no reason to do this. See, what you can do is you can find structure and structure begins to build and expand. And if you're not careful, eventually you end up serving the structure. All structure is there for is meant to release people. It's meant to equip people. And so as a church, this is our commitment. We will have structure, absolutely. But we'll have structure that allows us to infuse people with life. Let me give you an example of this. Martin Luther, the great reformer. 1500s, beginning of that century. He's, he's a priest. In those days... 
this book was only translated into Latin. But Martin Luther is a German. He's gone through seminary, a graduate degree in theology, and he's never read the New Testament. In his journals, he says this, today I entered a strange new world. And what he did is he began to read the New Testament. Now, he was one of the very, very few people in the world who could have read the New Testament because it was only written in Latin. The reason it was written in Latin is because the church hierarchy, which had grown in power and structure, had determined that if people like us read this book, we would misunderstand it, we would become heretics, all these things would happen. So no one, no matter how devout you were, you did not have a copy of this book in your native language. Luther begins to read it, and he comes across this teaching that he sees in the life of Jesus. He sees in Peter's writings. It's the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. What does that mean? Well, as you can imagine, think of the old triangle, right? Top down. The old model was there are a few priests, and they did all the things. You know, they, 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 they talked to God. They, they, they did the funerals. They, they prayed for the people who were sick. And as Martin Luther reads this, he thinks, wait a minute. The New Testament teaches that that whole power triangle has been inverted and God actually chooses average everyday people to be his priests, his representatives to culture, to the world, to the broken. And we are doing exactly what Moses did. There's only a couple of people in power and they hold all the strings. So Luther has this bizarre idea. He says, what if we translated this book into German so that people can read it. Oh, scandalous. They try to kill him. How dare you do that? Luther, of course, had his flaws, but at his core was this idea that the church structure and bureaucracy had shrunk down, and there are a few people in power, and that was never God's plan. God wanted to infuse people everywhere with power and strength to be his priests at their workplaces, in their schools, in their city government, to be missionaries in their neighborhoods and their cul-de-sacs. Number two, as a church, we will continue to emphasize that God equips all of his people for ministry. The church is at its best when it believes in the priesthood of every believers. We are the ministers. We're committed to that. This place is at its best. Study church history. And you'll see this correlation. It it seems to be quite clear. Those first couple of centuries of the church, it grew and blossomed. There were leaders there, of course, but the leaders were there to equip and release. And the church began to spread. And you will see this dramatic decline in the influence of the church. And let me tell you when. It's when Constantine declares Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And at about 649, in a new capital, in what we call today Istanbul, Istanbul, which was ancient Constantinople, they build the Hagia Sophia, 
this massive edifice. It's the first massive church built. Did you, you, you can study church history and you will not find massive church buildings for hundreds of years because Christianity was at its best when it's at the grassroots. We understand that they met in small groups and then they met in the temple courts. It doesn't mean that they were all small churches. But they weren't located in one place. They moved. They were full of, full of life. And as soon as the structure comes in, as soon as the Roman government is associated with the Christian church, the growth stops. Suddenly you have bishops who are also governors. And they have dual purposes. Christianity is at its best when it's grassroots. Thirdly, here's our third commitment. As a church, we will continue to emphasize small groups as a primary emphasis. Part of why we will emphasize small groups is because of what we just read in Exodus chapter 18. If I ever act like Moses, I give you permission to pull a Jethro on me. Okay? You just come up and say, look at me, Chris, you just come up and say, what you're doing is not good. And I'll know what you're talking about. But offer me some alternatives, please. I'm not very creative. What you're doing is not good. So why do we believe in small group models? Well, we believe, like this gathering, the whole purpose of this, I hope you understand, is to equip. Hopefully, I've done my job. I've been before God on behalf of the people. Then I come and teach, and then I'm going to try to model it to the best of my ability throughout the week. And then the fourth part of my job description is to release people to release people. So we have groups of 10. For everybody in this room who is a small group leader, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, I do not want to live like Moses lived. I don't want to send my wife and kids away because I'm too busy. But you pastor, you lead, you love people so that I can do my job. And then you guide people through that. God will equip you. He leads you. He guides you. For everybody who's in a small group, that's where you'll find your care. That's where you'll find people who know your name and will be there with you. And we'll put some structure. We'll put people of 50s and hundreds and thousands. If we, if we hired a new full-time staff member tomorrow, it wouldn't make a difference. Not to you. You wouldn't know. The community wouldn't know. So we would pay him full time and say, go do the work of God. It wouldn't make any difference. Here's the only way we change the world. Here's the only way we help people who have no idea how much God loves them to understand is this. It's not by hiring new people. It's by having a room full of people who understand that they are priests of God. Who understand that the Spirit of God equips them to pray for the sick, to speak hope to the hopeless, to serve those in need, to speak truth to people who are confused. When we have a church of 3,000 priests, 4,000 priests, men and women, that is how the world changes. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you have been the champion of infusing power and influence and ability 
and to common people like us. This is the beginning of time. We understand that leadership is important. But we also understand that leadership can constrict and strangle the life out of a community. Lord, I pray that right now, throughout the room, those of us who feel a bit disqualified, who feel I'm, I'm just too ignorant, I'm not trained enough, Lord, would the Spirit of God fall on us in a fresh new way as, as it happened in Acts chapter 2? And would there be gifts and would there be boldness and there would be the eyes of a missionary and the eyes of a priest and a priestess as we look at the world as a place for us to give, to love, to serve? Would our world literally be changed? One final prayer. If you're here today and you understand that it's time for you to surrender your life to Jesus, you just know, I've got to give my life to this God. Here's what he gives you. He gives you forgiveness of sins and acceptance. He already died for you. He loves you totally and completely. Here's what you give him. You surrender. You give up. And you say, I'll follow you wherever you lead. Here's my sin, my shame. Here's my strengths and my abilities. I surrender them all to you. If you need to surrender your life to Jesus this morning, would you just raise your hand and wave at me? Make sure we get eye contact. Yeah, yes, okay, both of you. Yes, sir, yeah, both of you. Brand new day for you over here, absolutely. Yes, ma'am, okay, both of you right there. Thanks for your courage. On my left, your right, if that's you, will you wave at me? Okay, right here, yeah, right there, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am, if you're in the balcony, will you wave at me if that's you? Lord, thanks for these brand new lives. Thanks for the way that you lead us. Amen. Amen. Hey, would you give a hand to those who just raised their hands? Powerful, beautiful. Big step, took a lot of courage. So as you go, have you ever noticed how I dismiss services? I say something like, be the hands and feet of Jesus. Why is that? Because of what we just read. Because I believe that we change the world when we leave this place. So if you raise your hand, I want you to go to the Welcome Center back there. We've got a free Bible for you. I want to get that in your hands. Join a rooted group. Uh, get baptized. If you need prayer, there's people you can trust up front. Otherwise, be the hands and feet of Jesus. Let God do something extraordinary through you. God bless.